Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague, Michael Dwyer. Today is the 3rd of the 8th. We're coming to you the bank holiday, uh, Monday, rather than the Sunday because of that. Michael, how have you been? I've been fine. It's slightly, it's a bit of an odd bank holiday, but lots of people around, lots of people buzzing. I'm told there was an hour, an hour and a half wait to go to the Chipper in Kilmore Quay last night, so... Obviously, people are staying at home, which is not. I mean, let's. Oh God, I know this is really picky, picky, but going on holiday in Ireland is not a staycation. That's a vacation. Going down and staying in a five-star hotel in West Cork is a is a is a vacation. Staying at home is Sally Noggin in your own house in your back garden. That's a staycation. Anyway, it is an odd. It is an odd term, actually. Now you mention it, I've never thought of myself as having gone on a staycation. But I have gone on holiday in Ireland a couple of times. And you know, if you, I mean, historically, if you went on holiday in Ireland, it meant there were plenty of other places in the, in the world you could have gone on a longer holiday because Ireland is not a cheap country to holiday in. But it's a lovely country and we like it. If there was ever a vote on it, we'd keep it. Mm. So what's happening in the world, Gary? Would you like to start on the fun news or the odd news? Oh, fun, fun. Let's go with fun. So uh, this is this is tangentially about the removal of statues from the Shelburne Hotel. Not uh, not directly about it, because as many of you were quick to send me emails about why the hell would you care about a hotel in Dublin? But uh, this is from our, our favourite expert on race. Oh. Dr. Eben Joseph. Lovely. Always good stuff. Always good value. So, you know, people were coming out and giving their opinion on the Shelburne statues and whether or not the fact a statue could, although it now looks like it may not actually, uh, depict slavery was enough to mean it had to be carted off somewhere and you know, destroyed for the good of the community. <laughs> I don't think there's any speculation that it's been destroyed yet, but anyway. Ah, uh, yeah, but we start with getting rid of it and then it'll be well, it exists somewhere and that knowledge is painful to someone. This is true. And then it'll just be melted down. Yes. But, however, this is, this is RTE, Michael. A lecturer of black studies at UCD told RTE's drive time that she applauds the Shelburne Hotel in Dublin for removing the statues from outside its premises. Dr. Eben Joseph said members of the black community could not afford to go to the hotel, so perhaps did not know the statues existed. Uh, wow. Uh, that, I think, Michael, might, might be... That's... Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the walking in front of it long and Stephen, um, have they started charging entrance to Stephen's Green yet? No, you see, Michael, black people are apparently so poor, according to Arnon's foremost expert on race, that the wealth of the Shelburne would force them away, would shield the local premises. Like, like, a, like, a, like a force shield in in, in Star Trek, go, and would and would drive them. F- Physically, or maybe would mask. It's like a masking effort, so they they wouldn't be able to see it because it would be so blinding to them. The privilege of wealth physically forcing black people off the sidewalk and away from Stephen's Green. Wow, would that work with the say Brown Thomas's? Did Brown Thomas's disappear to poor people? I think it has effectively disappeared for me for many years now, but I used to be able to see it. That's that's a curious thing. I wonder what other things happen in Dublin that appear and disappear, like that Scottish village that I can never remember the name of. 
Mm. I'll give you another good story about uh, about our favourite race, race expert. I don't know who appointed her that, but she seems to be that in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. I find it... I mean, if I was involved, Michael, in the... Um, in the teaching of, you know, social studies or social justice studies, I wouldn't be there. <laughs> if you were involved in teaching social justice studies, we would not be having this conversation. But anyway, go on. No, I probably wouldn't be around to have it anymore. I don't think I'd be terribly happy to have Eben Joseph be considered the country's foremost expert on racism. Partially because she has no... She's not good at it, but she's black, so they just gave it to her. Are you, and, are you um, saying she's privileged? She's operating under some kind of privilege there, Gary? I'm saying that even Joseph is an idiot. Okay. Uh, an ill-educated idiot, nearly incapable of stringing together two coherent sentences, but is immensely privileged in that she's allowed to get on TV and radio and uh, probably in print and say things that if a white person said to you, you'd look at and simply say, you are a fool. Okay, so you're saying that she's operating under privilege there. I'm just, just for clarity, I'm just trying to understand. Yeah, she, she didn't earn the right to have her ideas protected. Well, I think she's a master's in uh, social children or something from Maynooth. She she has a MA in education, adult guidance and counselling from Maynooth. Mm. And she was accorded a PhD in equality studies from the UCD School of Social Justice. Now, do you ever hear the saying that you you know you can't serve two masters in universities? It's either the project or veritas. I think at the point you are naming your school the School of Social Justice, you've just fucking given up. <laughs> well, Jonathan Haidt made this point some year, a couple of years ago, didn't he? he? Said that from it should be, and you should be free to do it. I think he's talking about Wesley. Wesley, I think, had actually made it officially part of their, you know, their statement, their mission statement was to create warriors for social justice. And he said that from the university should either choose to be involved in the project of teaching people stuff or social justice. And that way that when parents were sitting down to decide which 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 college they were going to pay forty or $50,000 a year to, uh, they could see which ones were involved in the in the, the manufacture of social justice warriors and which were involved in the education of their children. Uh, I, I, I happily hope and anticipate that day will arrive in Ireland also and uh, for the school in UCD indeed. There is, uh, there is I, I read an interview uh, with a woman in Image magazine because while I think she is poisonous, um, absolutely poisonous i could be wrong and so i actually quite enjoy reading things about people i think are awful but uh they did have this wonder i i loved this story so much she's talking about um she says in my career i have witnessed and experienced outrageous bias now this is a black nigerian woman michael coming to ireland maybe she had been severely discriminated against i mean horribly it's possible because we know it's, it's entirely possible we know that nigeria has a long and fractured history of relationships between different ethnicities i mean the biafran war I, was a huge issue in ireland culturally and the suffering of the people in the uh, the independent state of biafra so you know those issues there between the the Muslim North and the Christian South, 
So it's perfectly possible there may have been, who knows, Gary, we don't know. But here, here is the example, Michael, that she chose to use after saying, in my career, I have witnessed and experienced outrageous bias. She says this, Michael. On one occasion, I applied for a job in a major university here in Ireland. She says she's not going to name and shame them, which is very fair of her, but also means it's impossible to check. Major university in Ireland, I'm already suspicious, Kerry. Mm, none of them are in the top 100. No. I was very well qualified for the post, yet did not even make the shortlist. When I asked for feedback, I was shocked to see that I had been scored 5 out of 10 for knowledge of diversity. I have a doctorate in race studies. I should have taken them to court. It was so outrageous. But this is how it operates. I'm just curious. To the person that is her, I wonder, was her contention that the person that got the job had less knowledge of diversity than her? I think it's outraged the fact she could be scored 5 out of 10 for diversity. For knowledge of diversity. I mean, I could see a situation in which a highly educated Nigerian woman whose father was a politician... Uh, commissioner for education and finance actually knows very little about diversity well you know diversity is very much in the eye of the beholder there was a, a story this is not particularly anything to do anything but the new york times has committed itself to diversity in a radical uh, fairly radical fashion saying that when you look at the population of new york and you look at the people employed to write and comment upon the news in the the, the New York Times, uh, the they don't match. Over, as I said, over fifty percent of the population of New York is is you could call non-white, or although that's a rather offensive term. In the same way, you could also say that forty percent of the population of New York City self-identifies as either conservative. Uh, liberal, libertarian, or moderate. Well, probably not in New York. No, that's that's well. They're the figures that uh, on the the polling basis, libertarian, liberal, libertarian, moderate, are uh, conservative. So sixty percent. That means pretty well sixty percent are what you'd call progressive extreme, what we might call extreme progressive liberals. But the likelihood that you see 40% diversity of that kind in the New York Times. So it depends on what kind of diversity you're interested in. Are you interested in intellectual diversity, life experience diversity, or are you really just obsessed with the color of people's skin? I just, I also love someone scoring pearly on this and then just saying, but I have a doctorate in race studies. Yeah, look how diverse I am. I, did you see the comment? Uh, all of this went. So the, the the Shelburne statue thing slightly changed direction when somebody wrote a letter to the Irish Times saying that actually these figures are not slaves because they, if you look at the the artistic idiom of French sculpture at that time. If they were slaves, they would be represented as they would have been naked. They would not have been wearing jewellery. They would not have been wearing these nice clothes. So they are actually high status figures. The figure of the Nubian slave girl it was apparently a bit of a cliche of the time. Blah, blah, all this sort of stuff. Now, everybody said, ah, I see, they're not slaves, so leave them up. I don't like that argument, Gary, because the implication somewhere in the middle of that argument is if they were slaves, you take them down. 
and I didn't <coughs> agree with that. However, her response to that was, why should, what, look at this, look, the Irish Times is willing to take, listen to the word of, I think she's a PhD candidate. And you can hear the contempt in that. Apparently the person, he's a, he lectures in, in a college or university in London, in art, in, in art, in this particular period. And they would listen to this rather than to the voices of the descendants of the continent. That is white privilege. You know, maybe that is white privilege, but if that's white privilege, yeah. Is the guy, I'm not the that himself bothered. Wife? I don't know, Gary. That wasn't the first question that occurred to me when somebody, I, my, my first question was, is he somebody that knows a lot about the idioms of French bronze art, sculpture and art? You know, it seemed like that was the more important question to me. So I did think maybe we should, now what we should do is ring up CJ Standard down in Cork or Limerick, wherever he's living, Limerick probably. And because he's from Africa, and just because he's a rugby player doesn't mean that he doesn't have an opinion, Gary. Don't you say that. Joseph accuses pretty much anyone who goes against you of having privilege. But I think in this instance, the only privilege that the letter writer may have had is actually knowing what he's talking about. Which, considering even never tends to have that, that must be quite a jarring social experience for her. Yeah... This... Also, she's made a lot of like she's made a lot of comments, and if someone comes out and says, "Actually, they weren't slaves at all," that sort of just invalidates a lot of your time. Yeah, I suppose I, I do. Anyway, she's she is Ireland's foremost race expert, according to the media. She has been deemed it. There's no point ignoring her any further. She has been crowned. The fact she is getting those accolades and the the coverage she is getting is. I mean, shining is uh, not a good thing because whatever about there are people who hold the views she holds who are at least good at putting them forward oh, some, and seem to understand what they are saying. Uh, some of them are very, very good indeed. She, I mean, my overwhelming assumption about her is that she's just not terribly bright and she's not a good speaker. Well, it's. I suspect this is a story that is going to run and run and a whole variety of other issues that are going to present themselves. Uh, I see her more in the sense of, I've said before, that of being a witch, witch finder. And we've had different witch finders over the years, Gary. You've got, uh, whether it was communists you wanted to find, even the funny thing about them was they, all, they always found communists. But more importantly, while they'd found some, com they knew that there was a whole pile of communists that we hadn't found yet. And we needed a whole structure to find more communists. And you had others who wanted to find heretics and they found a few heretics and they burnt them, but they knew that there were loads more heretics and they needed more funding and more help and more assistance to get the heretics out and to make heresy unimaginable in the modern Ireland of today. And I suspect that here we will find that which some racists will be found, but more than that, we will know that underneath it all, there's a massive racist structure that will require funding, lots of funding. I do, I do love that UCD has a school called the School of Social Justice. It's just, it's perfect. It's everything. It's the odd little things that make you happy, isn't it, Gary? 
Well, yeah, like you gotta, you gotta find it. It's just we've given up as an academic institution. We like, surrender. It's, it's like it's like putting a giant a banner across you that just says, "Don't take us seriously." <laughs> I'm. Ah, oh, it's just, and it's the only area in which we will, we allow this sort of thing. And like, if if there was a school of history called School for the Furtherance of Appropriate History, it's not how you you don't get to do that. Our nice history. Mm. Actually, speaking of Witchfinder Generals, uh, Israel Folau is back in the news again. I just thought it was something that the journal was covering, but actually Orchie has got it as well. Yeah, Israel. Do you know what? Israel is... Uh, I, I, I get the impression Israel's a bit of a character. Israel Folau, uh, for those who don't remember, Israel Folau got in trouble. He was uh, sacked from Rugby Australia in 2019. The... The Journal and RTE say because of a homophobic social media post. I don't actually think his post was homophobic, and I'm not sure if that legally is exactly what you can say, because he was reinstated by Rugby Australia. He put up a post saying that, you know, uh, what it was, it was like, it wasn't, it wasn't, it was like sodomites, Thie- drinkers, thieves, gamblers, thieves, thieves. adulterers, uh, yeah drunkards it was a whole list of persons and types of people listed in the bible as people who were going to find it difficult in the next life and he said as a christian he loved these people and wanted and they should repent he wanted them to be saved he wanted them to go to heaven and it would be wrong of him not to tell them that they were risking their immortal souls. And you know what, Gary? If you share the worldview of Israel Flow, it's a bit like you know, saying there's a building on fire. You know that the building is on fire. You know that everybody in the building is going to be consumed. You've been given a warning and you slip out the door without telling anybody else that morally you're a little you would be implicated in the deaths of those people and i think that's how israel saw the situation he had a duty to tell these people i mean if he was homophobic you think he just wouldn't mention that these people were going to hell and he just waited out yeah just run the clock down jolly well deserved what they got but he did and he he got he got sacked and then he got reinstated anyway why is he in the news again because he's in australia and I don't know. I don't know why he's in the news again. It The construction of this story is very strange. I don't know why it is a story in Ireland. But the story is this, anyway. The story is that uh, Australian rugby star Israel Folau is at the centre of fresh controversy when he opted against taking a knee in a Super League anti-racism protest, a decision backed as a personal choice by his coach. Michael, we went very quickly from you can't kneel during these games to you can kneel during these games to now it is a controversy and statement if you don't kneel during these games. Yeah, it, 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 the, the speed in which these things evolve is, 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 is spectacular. We've noticed for quite some time, shall we say, in certain elements... I would naturally say on the progressive left, but I'm sure it happens elsewhere, where we go from, I don't like this, to very quickly saying, you should ban that. 
once upon we had Copernic sitting down. Start, he starts off by sitting down during the anthem, doesn't it? He's and then some of his mates said, "No, don't sit down, take it." And then everyone was, "Oh, very upset that he was taking a knee, and you shouldn't do that." And then they said, "Oh no, well, no, no, he should be allowed to do it." And then very quickly we got to the stage where everybody had to take a knee, and apparently his real philosophy said, "Oh no, you shouldn't be standing up. It's uh, it's uh, now Israel is uh, his his parents are Tongan." Um, so I, I don't know how to parse that ethnically, racially, socially, justice wise. How does that work? He's a straight man, so obviously he loses points for that. But I don't think he, you could say he's a straight white man. I think that would be. And the, the news is on, is on RTE as well. I came from AFP, which is a... Um... It's a news agency headquartered in France. It's basically like the Associated Press. If you're in the media, you buy stories from it. So they covered it. And then both the journal and the RTE paid for this story. But why? I legitimately don't know why. Why is this a story? Catalan Dragons. It's not exactly... No, it's it's an Australian sports story. Also, the homophobic thing actually kind of annoys me. Because it's just it just... Just one line. It's lazy, isn't it? It's just handy. He he was sacked over a homophobic social media post. And you go, there was a massive pushback against this. There were, I mean, there were major politicians getting involved in what effectively became in Australia a very serious um, freedom of religion uh, debate. And whether or not you could have these views without being uh, publicly punished for it. And whether they should be protected and... Also, there was then the debate about whether or not Israel Fellow actually was homophobic, given what we've said, that uh, if you actually believe that gay people are going to burn in hell if they are actively uh, engaging in sexual relations, and you don't tell them, surely that is worse. Well, yeah, it's, it's just, it's a peg you can hang the man on. You've said that about him, you don't need to say anything else about him, he is explained away in a fairly direct and uncomplicated fashion so there you go you don't need to engage with it anymore you, you know the kind of person he is i also i like the phrasing he uh, he raised eyebrows at the kickoff when he remained standing while other players and officials fell to their knees in support of the black lives matter <laughs> cause fell to their now, knees it's, fell to their knees that? now that phrasing sounds religious there's a line in a Christa Burke song, The Crusader, which would absolutely never be sung in public these days, I'm sure. But the, when Richard, the, the army of Richard Leonhardt comes over the, the hill and they saw Jerusalem, they fell to their knees and prayed for a horror release. It, it does. It does sort of have this fall to your knees and witness the glory and the power. Yeah. God, Chesterton, you know, this whole thing about the old saw. But the problem when people stop believing in God is not that they believe in nothing, but rather they believe in everything. I know it's repeated constantly by religious people, but you're not guaranteed there's a truth in there. I, I don't know. I, I think I think it's just religious people have one subject in which they can instill religious belief. And I think it's a lot easier for people who aren't religious to instill their general views with religious faith. Which is not good, because people are not that smart. And I don't mean that as any slur on people, I just mean that people have evolved 
largely to be very good at justifying socially beneficial beliefs, where that's defined as with their particular subgroup, socially beneficial to them. We're just a tribal animal, and religious belief in things like this is not going to end well. Also, let's face it, most of the time, most of us don't. Outside of the small number of things that directly affect us and we care about, we don't really care about other stuff. We're not paying attention. And if somebody else comes along who is an appointed expert and tells us, no, this is what we believe about this, they say, okay, boss, we're perfectly willing to subcontract out large sections of our opinions and our belief systems to other people because they spend their lives doing that. And let's face it, as long as it doesn't interfere. Well, of course, at the moment, it is interfering with me getting to the pub and going to a match. So maybe that's the, maybe this is the path to revolution. Do you know, also, do you know the other thing this article doesn't have? What is that? So they, they went and they talked to Falau's coach. And they talked to, it sounds like a couple of his teammates. They didn't, they didn't seem to have talked and... Talked. Talked, talked even. Talked, yeah. To, uh... Yeah, I'm originally from Dublin. You can you can tell. Um, no, I was thinking. I, was thinking, I thought you were German. They haven't got talking. As they're talking, uh, they don't seem to have talked to Israel Falau. Like, why? Why didn't he take the knee? If we're gonna, I don't think we need to talk about it. But if we're gonna talk about it, I'd like to know why then. If we must talk about it. But do you really want the opinions of that kind of person in your newspaper, Gary? I mean, he's a homophobe who got sacked by the Australian rugby No, I mean, that's the other thing. Did they talk to him and he said something like, I think BLM is racist. And then they were left with a, well, we can print that or we can just not mention anything. Mm. <laughs> I still, I, I, um, if... Because the article also doesn't say... We reached out to Israel Falau for con- uh, for comments and, and didn't receive, receive one. it. Yeah, on the beyond uh, some of the listeners may be aware. I had a conversation with uh, the very very impressive uh, academic uh, economist in the United States, uh, Glenn Lowry, and he hadn't heard, but I, I mentioned to him the fact that the NAACP in Portland had commented on the the ongoing problems in Portland, but however it had started. It had now just turned into a white spectacle. He said he hadn't heard it, but he was delighted to hear somebody said something like that. And I, you know, there is this element now. I think that for there's a there's a worry about you don't ask the wrong people about things connected to the protests or things connected to BLM because people are starting to have opinions. Gary, people are. Do you know what? People are actually going to the website. They're following. You you have to be fair to BLM. In all their statements, they provide a link. Did you um? Did you see the video of the BLM protesters at I think it was Oxford. Mm. It was definitely Oxbridge. It was one of the two, and um, she's on. She she was talking about the need to dismantle capitalism, the standard shit. And there's a vid, another video of her, where she is talking to a black man, and the black man says she's being racist, and she's like. Someone educate this brother. Uh, it's clearly a thing. But then she repeatedly calls him a coon when he argues against her. And you're like, okay, I, you're, you're speaking. Yeah, you just, yeah, you just. If you're standing there and you are positioning yourself in vilifying or vilifying one race, and calling a black person who says you're wrong a coon repeatedly 
you're probably a racist. I, I don't, I don't, we need a very technical, very advanced university formula for you to get out of this without being a racist. I don't know. There is another category you could fall into, Gary. Prick. I mean, that, that is the other thing. If that is your first response of just, when you said I'm wrong, you're a coon. You sort of go, well, maybe you're just not good at this. Or maybe you're just a bit of an ass. Maybe you're a bit of a, maybe, or if, if you're not, not prick, maybe possibly bollocks, you know, to, uh, it's the, a particularly apt Dublin academic characterization there. Uh, yeah, there. I think there are different. No, that's not to say you couldn't be all of these things, Gary. You could be a racist and a prick and a bollocks. Yeah, I think these people need to be laughed at more. Well, I, a mixture of laughing and throwing stones. No, I don't think you need to throw stones. I, I think you need to just... I think, your you, I think it would be fun to throw some stones. Yeah, but... You know, you know I can't... I, I, I cannot I the, cannot condone violence. No, me. I'm not saying... I'm thinking more a celebration. A celebration, a cultural celebration. Much like the running of the bulls. We could have the running of the PLMs, you know? And it could be fun. We could do it in a small step, any small Spanish city. Uh, they run their own version of it. They run the, the running of the racists in, in the United States at the moment. So it's all good fun. It's all good fun, Gary. We shouldn't take it too, we shouldn't take it too seriously. We start taking these people seriously and then everything will collapse because most of these people... There's not a terribly advanced ideology in most of these It's people. not like we are taking people and, and paying them out of the public purse to spread this kind of stuff, is it? No, no. I mean, that would be, that'd be suicidal. That would be that'd madness. Be, you'd be paying people effectively to undermine the culture of the state. In the very existence of the state being brought into, into existential question. You know, the, we'd never do something stupid like that. But, Michael... What if we did? <laughs> yeah, uh, then I don't know. Speaking of uh, people doing things to bring the state into, uh, into trouble, the, possibly the existential nature of the state, Pascal, I saw, uh, this is a small piece of news, I'm just, I may be reading too much into it. But oh, I, just to I don't think so. Uh, Pascal was at a, um, at a PricewaterCooper event, PwC, he was at one of their webinars and he was talking to them. And what he said was um, the Apple taxation case, even though we had won it, had done immense reputational damage to Ireland abroad. And that he believed it was inevitable that international taxation systems would change and that Ireland would suffer from the repercussions of those or be impacted by the repercussions of those. Firstly, I don't know who he's talking to about the Apple case, uh, I would imagine, didn't help us with the EU, particularly the Parliament. But anyone in business I've talked to, or even in government, has been broadly supportive of it. They like to see a government stand up for businesses, particularly when the government says there's no case for it. But we also had Phil Hogan. Yeah, is it, it's, it's hard... Well, could these things possi possibly be co coordinated? You got Phil Hogan coming out and saying Ireland can can improve its three billion euro take from the euro EU coronavirus aid. Now let's we leave aside what whether this is a net figure or a gross figure, and we're actually going to contribute more than we get out because that's just petty fogging detail. 
But he said it must also seriously consider giving Brussels taxing power. EU Commissioner Phil Hogan has warned. Now this this comes shortly after news came out that the EU is looking at because the EU has a big bugbear with uh, Ireland's corporate tax rate, by which I mean that Germany and France, but particularly France, has a really big problem with Ireland's corporate tax rate. They tried to change it during the last bailout, and uh, Enda, to be fair to him, basically fought them off. But now word has come out that they're actually... Traditionally, we would have had a veto on any change to that. Yeah. But they are now looking at effectively implementing a very old treaty provision, which has never been put in play. And that would mean that they would only need a a majority, I think a qualified majority, I'm not 100% sure on that, to implement changes in taxation policy in areas where the market within the EU is distorted, basically. Uh... And they have long been arguing that the corporate tax rate is a distortion. So my concern here is that, as I said, I might be reading too much into that, but between Pascal and between Phil, that this is laying the groundwork for the ceding of those powers to Brussels. And the problem there is that um, they uh, they will change the corporate tax rate, which has, I think we can broadly agree, been one of the most successful fiscal policies ever implemented by the Irish state. Two, three weeks ago, maybe a bit more, I was talking to a young, to me young, Chinese entrepreneur who had just moved his business from Hong Kong to Dublin and on the basis. He, by the way, had a very, very negative view of the future of Hong Kong. He was. He said, no, he wasn't hanging around to see what was going to happen next. He said that he and all of his friends pretty well had decided what was happening next. And I asked him, well, why Ireland? And he said, why not London? It would seem, or some, no, no, tax. Now, I think for Unite, when you do surveys on reasons why companies from the United States set up here largely, Tax is part of the package, but there are lots of other things that they find attractive here. It's not simply taxation. But it would be nonsense to suggest that the corporate... And it's not simply the rate. It's the predictability. That was the big thing. Do you remember, what Gary, we, we did uh, some work on tax prediction, uh, tax uh, stability, tax predictability, you know, Tax predictability. Yeah, we we did, and uh, how revenue seems to be trying to hack it off at the knee. And one of the things I found very interesting, there were several studies done, including in Europe, but I remember one which had been done uh, for New Zealand and Australia, talking about uh, investment from East Asia. And again, big thing that came across was that they weren't, as as long as the tax corporation taxes, taxes fall, fell within a certain range. It wasn't the actual taxation that they felt they were most concerned with, but rather that the, their sense that this was a stable platform and that they could they could engage in medium to long-term planning on the basis that this was going to be, this was what, what was going to be the tax expectation. Once you start fecking around with that, we know that one of the most de- destructive things to investment of any kind from small companies up right up to Microsoft's and IBM's 
is unpredictability. And that's one of the reasons why you've, for, in a completely different subject story, why you, we have stories about people leaving the, the rental market in Dublin over the last year or so is because of the unpredictability, they don't no sense that they know which way the government is going to go jump next regarding rent controls or extra protections. So when you introduce that kind of un unpredictability into it, you're going to damage investment. I There's two minds on it. One, the, the, the fund the EU has put together, the chance of us being able to get enough from that to offset the even medium term loss of any forcible change to the corporate tax rate, I would say is very unlikely. Yeah. I would say, in fact, it's probably incredibly unlikely. Yeah. So why is Phil Hogan telling us? It's like we want to take this gold statue from you and instead you can get a slightly bigger sandwich now. You can have a sandwich now. A single sandwich, perhaps. Okay, I, it's obviously not a great deal. I, I, I don't know. I've never really got the hang of Fine Gael's re relationship with the EU. They, in, in the old days, when we still had Fianna Fáil, do you remember Fianna Fáil? They were the big, big party back in the day. They died, didn't they? Yeah, they, or they went to, I can't remember, they died or they went away somewhere. But they, they wasted away, some sort of wasting disease. Wasting disease. But well, they used to have these great leaders. There was a guy called Albert Reynolds, dancing and dog food, that was his money thing. But they had this thing called a transactional relationship with the EU. They didn't give a flying fuck about the great platonic ideas of the European idea. How much money can we get out of them? Well, that's very unfashionable these days. And when they got lots of money out of them, as they occasionally did, they came home in triumph, waving checks in the air and saying, I bring back peace in our time. But Fine Gael have always had, I, it, was, it, it was explained to me once by a Fine Gael that it was a kind of an, a substitute, an ersatz form of power for them, that since they were so rarely in power in Ireland, by because they were members of the popular party, which tended to mean that they were the members of the largest political grouping in Europe, that they got to sit down with the chancellors, like the chancellor of Germany or the prime minister of Italy or Spain, or maybe the president of France. And they were part of the club. They were the popular party, the people's party, the Christian Democrats. And therefore to them, it was more important. It was, and they wanted to really engage. It was a more spiritual exercise. Whereas Fianna Fáil, because Fianna Fáil apparently the, the bad, I can't really remember them, but we're not as all a spiritual people. It was a much more grubby, transactional kind of attitude. I don't, I don't get it. Um, it's like they're saying, oh, well, it's going to happen anyway, so what can you do? You I think the thing, you ever hear the phrase, you can trust a good man and you can trust a bad man, but you can't trust a weak man? Yeah, a weak man is very dangerous. And I just remember when we were, and this, I, I laugh, but it, it, it probably did kill a considerable amount of people. Um, do you remember when we had, early in the COVID-19, before the lockdown, there was a rugby match and we cancelled the rugby match. And then we asked, uh, well, sorry, we didn't ask, the government was asked, would it 
ban travel from Italy over that weekend because a lot of Italian rugby fans from, I believe, one of the regions most heavily impacted yeah, by COVID-19 in Italy uh, were still going to come over because they had all the flights booked, they had the hotels, and yeah, the match wasn't on, but you've already paid for everything, so like, yeah, why not? come on over, have, have the party. And Pascal came out and said that we couldn't do that and because of how it would look and reminded us that would ask us to consider more so how we would feel had the Italians banned uh, Irish fans from being able to travel to Italy where the situations reversed. I just remember thinking at the time that and I'm pretty sure I, I said explicitly on the podcast that is the reasoning of a child. That's not a governing policy. That is, they will think less of us we do. Which, by the way, they wouldn't have. The Italians are not sentimental about this. They would, like, if, if the situation was reversed, they would have shot us at the border. Listen, what it, talk whatever about foreigners, uh, by, by this stage, there were Italian regions in the south of Italy sending messages to Milan and to Bur- and Bergamo and, uh, in the north saying, don't come. You are not welcome. We don't want you. We will stop you at the borders. So, I also, by the way, I think had the thing been reversed and the Italians had said to the Irish, I'm sorry, we're not accepting you. The Irish attitude would have been, well, that's right. I think that's fair enough. I absolutely believe that. The Irish attitude would have been, that's fair enough. Few people who'd lost a holiday might have been pissed off, but he also did invoke something to do with f- that free travel within the union was a fundamental precept of the whole thing. Yeah, he, and he, he did. He also invoked it at a time when it was very clear that no one gave a shit about it. And a precept which maybe a month and a half later suddenly had disappeared. Yeah, shocking about that. But I, I remember thinking at the time that that wasn't a good or a bad action. That was a weak action. Uh, I'd be really, I know that'd be, I'd be really hurtful. I'd be really, no, yeah, no, no, no. It's just, oh God, what would, what would they feel? Like, your, your, your job is not what they would feel and what they would say to you. Your job is to effectively govern. I think the best. And maybe you should consider trying that at some point. I think a good analogy would be, it, 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 if you're having a, a child is, uh, in third class is having a birthday party and you say, no, no, you have to invite him too. You can't invite everybody and leave him out because that would be hurtful. It was, it was the politics of the third class birthday party. And if they if they take if that is the approach they take to taxation, we're fucked. Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I say what you will about Enda Kenny, but Enda Kenny came under considerable pressure from the French and basically told them to take a jog on. I mean, they tried to tie us changing our corporate tax rate to receiving a bailout, and he pushed back on that at a time when the country was never weakest. And now at a time when the country is actually in a position of relative strength, we just seem totally unwilling to do anything about it. They're just... You know, seem, I don't, I don't it's know. the kind of conversation where I'd be very worried that, very, that somebody eventually would start to tell us that we had to be mature and grown up about this. Yeah, they, <laughs> that's, a, that's a very Finnegale approach to things. The problem I have generally found is that when they've been saying it, they've been saying it about things where the approach they have picked doesn't necessarily appear to be one that's mature and grown up. It 
appears to be one which is easy and in their interests. Although in this case, their interest appears to be, God, it would be terrible if I had to speak to someone at a party and they said, we would have rather you did this and you didn't. <laughs> yep. Just incredible weakness. Yep. Yeah, we anyway, hopefully we're reading too much in <clears throat> I, th I think the combination of Pascal and Phil Hogan turning up at the same time. It's smelly. There's a certain look to there's a certain look of laying the groundwork yeah. here so that when it happens and I think we are we are now running into a very severe problem that without Britain in the EU, the person who would fight for the really unpopular things that we benefited greatly from and supported but absolutely didn't want to tell people about because then we would be, you know, pushy or unpopular. They're not there anymore. For years so, we stood behind the Brits as they made themselves unpopular on all sorts of issues, which, because I don't know why, but we just tended to have similar approaches. Maybe it's because we share a common law heritage or a, it's an Anglosphere thing, whatever it was. And we would stand behind them and they would be making themselves horrid and unpopular. And we would be standing behind doing these faces of lads, you know, it was up to me, but you're, yeah, God, isn't he awful? Oh, shocking, isn't it? God, look at mm -hmm. God, the English. And you know, we talked about this when the when the Brexit thing was going on. The the contempt and the disregard that came out of Irish media and Irish politicians towards the Brits was just unrelenting. And if you're going to do that, fine. But we said. Right now, what we need to be doing is going over to the Hungarians and the Czechs and the Slovaks and to the Poles and, and the Lithuanians and the Latvians and getting it together some kind And of, the Nordics. And the Nordics, getting, and, and maybe the Danes and the Dutch, but not the French and the Germans, but trying to create relationships, trying to get friends, trying to, but no. No, no, no. We, we just we wanted to be you know, nice with the French and the Germans. And... Yeah, we, we like to be involved, but we don't like to actually have to make difficult decisions or push for difficult things. That Because that might be problematic, and then people might not like you. And God, I yeah, noticed about yeah, our, we, our, we like to be uh, liked. About our political establishment, particularly. I have never seen another country so hunger for praise from other countries. I mean, Americans, whatever you think about Americans, American politicians literally do not give a shit what other countries think about them. Don't care. At all. Just, just totally. Like, if you like them, that's fine. They don't dislike you. But if you don't like them, they don't care. Because why would it matter? And Britain is much the same. The French? It's, it's, do, you think it's the, do you think the French care what anybody the germans care the germans have issues the germans really care they care way too much yeah but and in a very weird way you know there's that the line from yes minister when he, sir humphrey is trying to explain to the minister why the european community exists and he said oh the germans why because they're trying to expiate genocide and get readmitted to the human race 
it was funny and true and sad and horrible, but it's also basically it was the motivation. It was the motivation force. One of the constant phrases, I don't know, do you see it as much? But then again, I maybe don't read the Times as much as or as carefully as I used to. There was a phrase constantly, constantly appear, Gary, about Irish politics and Irish policy issues. They say, we are a laughing stock around the world. We are a la- and this always struck me as, most, in a bizarre way, a ridiculously narcissistic thing to say as a way of, as a self-criticism. I once wrote a little blog about this, where I imagined that in Paraguay, the people of Paraguay had suddenly be, had developed an unhealthy interest in, all, in Irish politics. And every morning they would open their papers and go to the Irish section and have a good chortle with their coffee over what was happening in Ireland. Because when people would say this thing, we're a laughing stock over there, I think, who the fuck is laughing at us? Who cares enough? Who who is reporting Irish politics? I tell you, I lived in I and I read I read an Italian newspaper every, pretty well every day for eight or nine years and proper newspaper. The number of stories about Ireland, Gary, that I read in ten years did I read 10? But we have this thing. Oh, they're all laughing at us. Nobody's laughing at you. Nobody knows. If, the, if, if, if we sank, into the, gently sank into the Atlantic, that might be a story. Yeah. But this notion, this desperate yeah, like, sense of anyway. Right. The French don't care. The British don't care. But we have this awful yearning need to be liked and to be considered well and it just strikes me as something that one is amazingly easy to be used against us and two just doesn't say anything good about the national psyche there's a, why a, a, why do we need that it induces this kind of odd grovel this natural disposition of in front of other leaders, Uriah Eep from Dickens, you'll be humble, Uriah be humble. I remember a civil servant saying to me that it was odd. He saw it as separated at 10 or 15 years. Charlie Hawhey met Mitterrand, I think it was. Mm. And he said he had never seen an Irish politician so so comfortable. And he said Mitterrand was an, an imperial figure. And, and and in the in these circumstances, an Irish politician would have been absolutely at sea. And oh, so Charlie accepted it as his perfectly natural due that he should too be in this lofty, high space. That he he was a chieftain. He was the Taoiseach of his people. And he said that fifteen years later, he was what he was. Whoever was a Chirac or whoever was, I said the difference between the the Irish the attitude. At a time when Ireland was far richer, more successful, better placed, should have been much more confident, but it was the characteristic of the people and the and their their nature and the disposition. She said, "Charlie, Charlie just took it as his natural gift." We could speculate a lot about Charlie Hawhey and goods and the good and the bad and whatever, but one of the things about Charlie that 
people who saw him work said to me that he believed that there was no reason why the Irish people shouldn't be successful like every other people could be. At a time when lots of people in Ireland had kind of assumed that we were just always going to be poor. It was just the way we were. A little bit of Charlie arrogance wouldn't be a bad thing right now. No, it wouldn't. And it's it's one of the reasons I always liked Charlie, because he seemed to run so contrary to what the the national psyche of the country is. Which, to be honest, I find kind of, not groveling, but a little bit of doff the cap oh, took the towards off. people that we are not our betters and should not be seen as our betters. And a little bit of actual pride would go a long way. Where would you find it today? I don't know where. And we don't, if, you, well, if you went to look for it, I don't know where you'd find it. But anyway. I and mean, then you have things like you have Michal Martin, you have Michal Martin standing up and saying he in no way holds to the old and tired ideals of nationalism. Aye. Now I, I kind of feel that whatever it. That you know, there's different types of nationalism. But I feel like the man who wants to be Thishok should have a little bit of nationalism, given it is your job to run the country and not run a different country. Yes. And you should make decisions for the country you're running which you know maybe a little bit nationalistic i don't think that's a bad thing no i'm, I'm not saying start a war for the north or put in place an ethno state invade rockall but like a little bit of civic nationalism and a little bit of pride in your country and a feeling that you have a right to occupy the place you're in and don't have to just take what france and germany says because Oh, well, if we said no, it would be terribly uncomfortable. Like, get off your fucking knees. Anyway, how much do you care about schools rugby, Gary? Uh, far less than the Green Party. Green Party? You wouldn't have... You, if you'd been putting five pound down on who would be the most passionate about playing the Lent I Schools am. Cup, I don't know if you would have said... I thought... I know it's a cliche... Dreadful cliche. I would have put my money on Fine Gael or possibly am, the Labour Party. I am surprised that you're surprised, Michael. Because you don't don't look at what they what the party say. Look at who votes for them. And look at where they went to school, I suppose. And the Green Party in Dublin, impeccably respectable middle class people. Oh, absolutely. Now, to be fair, the, 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 the man who is particularly passionate about this is Vincent Martin. Uh, who is a Kildare man, and that is, I think, particularly why he's so passionate, because it happens to be two Kildare schools, not two horrible, scangery Dublin schools like Black Rock or St. Michael's or Belvedere, but it's Newbridge College and Clongo's Wood. Clongo's, of course, is a, uh, the home of more VCs than any other school, or all the other schools, is it? Clongo's. Somebody wrote a book about it, a very good little book. So he was very, very, very impassioned about it. But the, the Greens are surprising us all over the place. I, when was the last time? When was the last time the party whip lost the whip, Gary? I'm sure someone left it in a desk at some point. <laughs> but has he lost the whip? Like, the Greens, the Greens are actually doing what they would. They said they would do. They're inventing a new politics. What was the first one to go? I want. I'm. I, I'm hopeless with names, as you know. Was it Nessa Horrigan? 
Nessa Horrigan, yes. Yeah. The person who helped uh, negotiate the deal that brought Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Green Party into government. I believe the finance spokesperson of the Green Party. The person who stood on uh, with Matt Cooper and Ivan Yates and said that over several weeks she still couldn't make any of the finances of the deal make sense. And it didn't uh, didn't seem to work. Was it her or was it one of her colleagues? They voted. They voted against some aspect of a of government policy. Resigned, but resigned from the government. But said they would. They were resigning from the government or from and resigning the whip. But they were still going to be part of the parliamentary party. I. It's a new metaphysics, Gary. It's a whole new way of doing politics that nobody had ever worked, nobody ever thought of before. And then the Green Whip, he abstained from a vote, I believe, rather than voting against government. Well, that was nice of him. But it's the, God, they're good. It's so many, so many people keep saying to me, about we've had this government for a month. And we have had more value out of them than we've had 10 years of Yeah, government. no, you have, and I, I've deeply enjoyed it. At the same time, however, it's a wonderful example of why democracies always fail. In the end. In the end. Because, yeah, they, they have made some spectacular issues. But think about the actual policy impact of any of those scandals. Minute. Non-existent in most cases, actually. Absolutely irrelevant to the proper functioning of the state. Yes. Fine Gael. Fine Gael didn't really have scandals. It had bureaucratic cock-ups. But those bureaucratic cock-ups ended up costing the state billions of euro. Yes. Derailed projects left and right. Things just failed. We went in weird directions. There was massive policy impact. But it was all immensely boring. And so there weren't newspaper headlines saying that Fine Gael had, uh, you know, was on the edge. That they were going to bring down the state, whatever nonsense we're saying about the current government. I say this as someone who doesn't like Michal Martin as a politician and doesn't think he's a fit Taoiseach. Nothing that has happened actually impacts on policy at all. You, you take the example of the 16 grand for the super ministers, right? Yeah. And and not just that, but all of the story. First it's 16 grand for everybody, and then that. Then it's only going to be 16 grand for two, and then they're going to divvy it up differently. And then then the, they're going to take a 10,000 pay cut, but actually then it turns out it's not a pay cut because all it is is a, the old pay cut that the previous cabinet had taken had lapsed, so now they're just reinstating that. And... When you actually did all the figures, they were probably going to get a pre rise rather than a pay cut, blah, blah. This went on. This was passionate and dissected and everybody was talking about it. And I was terribly boring because I kept saying to people, yeah, how many stories have we had in the last month about how many hundreds of millions or billions the overrun is going to be for the children's hospital? And when the children's hospital is actually going to be complete and how effectively it's going to provide the services and how many beds will we actually have over than we did before. Mm -hmm. let's, take the, uh, let's take the travel green list. A uh, confusing thing which in the long run may not be a good idea. 
probably doesn't need to happen. Although for business travel, I can certainly see that there would be a usage in that. Let's compare that to, let's say, the decisions regarding nursing homes that came out. Yeah. Or the government statements on masks or the refusal to ban Italians from coming in for a rugby match because they would think less of us. So the direction to suppliers not to supply uh, nursing private nursing homes with uh, protective equipment. The statements from one of the heads of the nursing homes, uh, not union, but owners group, saying that it took them basically a month to get an actual meeting with uh, Simon Harris. Yeah. The, those things. Those things. If we want to just talk in horrible, grubby money terms, the cost and the effectiveness and the benefit of the broadband rollout plan. But all very boring and all very technical. And you are just the listener may think that saying that this is how democracy dies is incredibly, uh, incredibly out of whack. But it's not though, because it, the things that people are interested in, and newspapers write about the things people are interested in to a large degree, because they rely on subscriptions. Uh, for a large part, particularly now with advertising down, and because they can see all of the metrics, so they know what people actually read. People aren't interested in the actual governance of the country. They're interested in a fucking drama. A comedy, a drama, a soap opera, yes. They're not really interested in sitting down and watching three hours of somebody doing accounts. I mean, th things like the tax certainty issue, which we, the Edinburgh Institute, has been doing many interactions with politicians about it's incredibly difficult to get people to pay any attention to it because no one cares about it and it is because incredibly very... important for foreign direct investment in this country absolutely it will have a massive impact on this country revenue seems to currently be absolutely shredding the principle because they can and but it's not sexy and the, to be fair a lot of the economics journalists we talked about uh some are better than others, but a lot of the business and economics guys do understand it. They do, but, but also, Gary, the part of this pro part of the problem there is it's a wider problem is that to the extent that there has been any kind of discussion about foreign direct investment in Ireland, there's the element of okay, we like the jobs and we like the wages and the tax we get from the wages, but at the end of the day. These are big behemoth American companies and they are, quote, not paying their fair share. They're, they're getting out of what they should be paying, whatever that might mean. So there isn't any kind of instinctive sympathy, maybe is overstating it, for, for companies here. But rather, the problem isn't that there isn't sympathy, but it's the other way. There's a kind of a sense of antipathy. If there's any kind of a tax issue, that, oh, well, they're just trying to get out of it. They're just trying to squeeze more money somehow out of us that they wouldn't otherwise. It's like in the discussion around the, the Apple thing. How many people, I mean, that court, that court, that case has been going on for years. We're still saying, and I'm talking about members of the doll, 
we what could we do with 16 billion we should take the 16 billion and spend it on schools and hospitals what proportion of the 16 billion were we going to get gary well i think we were saying basically none of it uh but the general general approach from what I saw was we would get absolutely all of it and there were no questions to ask and anyway if there were questions there was no point asking them because we were going to win the case or we weren't going to win the case anyway because the money was obviously ours and everyone was perfectly correct and whoops. Wouldn't it seem, am I being ridiculously naive here, that when you have large numbers of politicians and TDs making out that there is a lump of money like this big lump of money serious money not hundred millions billions that we could just pick up and put in our pockets and walk off with that and this was how they were talking and characterizing it to the people and that that was simply not true that that was something that a media a responsible media should have tried to explain and i'm not aware that there was any intent concerted in other ways to explain that to to people I, when you're watching social media and again and again people tds I have to say primarily on the left kept on repeating this at the end what is nobody going to challenge this and also to be honest i thought it was an incredible failure on behalf of the media and the press office of the government and the government parties that they weren't absolutely wallpapering the, the gaffe with an explanation of the nature of the breakdown of what would it what it would actually ultimately mean regarding the distribution of the different of the tax take I, I i don't know why they weren't doing more on that we don't explain things anymore we tell people things when was the last time you actually saw someone so politician explain not just tell you what is happening but say why it is happening and what the impact of that would be Oh, yeah, but I don't. We just we just tell people things, and then we go, oh, they weren't convinced by it. Were we ever any? Because it wasn't convincing. Were we better than this before? I don't. Were we ever better? Uh, Was there a time when people explained more? I mean, the British were better. I think they've also gone yeah, the way of yeah. just telling people things. I think that's but they used to true. be better. So presumably, we were also at some point better. But anyway, now when the democracy dies and it all falls down, something better will come along. Well, different. Make me king. I think it's the simplest way to do it. I, there is a strong argument for the divine mandate. And I think I have it here somewhere. Did you also leave it in a desk? Possibly beside the whip? Maybe. I might have left it in that... There's a drawer I can't quite get open and it might be in there. I love the image. and I know this is basically laughing at your own joke of Nisa Harrigan opening a desk drawer looking down, looking up and going, no, it's not the whip, it's just the divine mandate of heaven and just closing the drawer. <laughs> I'm sure she's looking for the divine mandate of heaven all over the place. Oh, she was. I could find it anywhere. I think I once saw it in a shop in Surrey, but I didn't have enough pounds on me. <laughs> it is a bank holiday and maybe the weather is going to be reasonable, so we should allow these people to go off and do something more productive with their time rather than sitting here listening to us. So I would say that we would wish them a happy holiday and we will be back. Um, what day will we be back? Wednesday? Wednesday. 
We're back on Wednesday with all sorts of new and brilliant insights into why democracy is dying and the mandate of heaven is coming your way soon. But until then, bye-bye. All the best.